Good evening, everybody. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. It's the rich young ruler story. It's probably a pretty popular uh, story that you probably have heard multiple times. Um, but before we dive into it, I would like to give a kind of a background to Mark, the gospel of Mark. Who, who was Mark in the Bible? A lot of people would say a disciple. <laughs> That's the very first thing I usually get. He's not a disciple. Um, he traveled with Paul and his cousin Barnabas on their first mission. It, he actually leads to a, um, a dispute between the two in Acts uh, chapter 15, verse 38, where earlier in that first mission, Mark leaves them. And during their, before their second mission, Paul doesn't want to take Bar- I mean, Mark with him. He, Barnabas does. And they split. Paul takes Silas and he goes about his own path. And Mark and Barnabas leave together. But but it's kind of a great story. You can read in between lines about John Mark. Because towards the end of Paul's life, he calls for Mark to be at his side in 2 Timothy 4. He says, send Mark. He's useful to me in ministry. And also, at some point, he meets Peter. And Peter and him become pretty close that he calls Peter his son in 1 Peter. So you, you see a man who failed on his first mission trip somehow get redeemed by uh, being trained by another man named Peter who also failed Christ, at, you know, denied him three times. It's kind of a pretty powerful story in the background of the Bible. But also the Gospel of Mark is a, um, it's the shortest Gospels and it's believed to be the oldest Gospel. You know, there's some kind of argument there, which one's older. But Mark is usually the one that everybody describes as the oldest. Um, there's some other things about Mark. It's a very, stat, I mean, a very dynamic book. It shows Jesus in action more than Jesus' teaching. His teaching is more in action. And it's a, it's a pretty cool um, effect of that book. It, uh, it, is, um, it is, like I said, the shortest gospel you know, only 16 chapters. Um, the rich young ruler is a story, though, that's in Mark, but it's also in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a pretty important story to be told in all three. It's one of the only stories to be in all three of the gospels, the synoptic gospels. But let, let me turn to chapter 10, verse 17. We'll read through it real quick. The rich young ruler. As he was sitting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who had owned much property. And Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? 
Looking at them, Jesus said, with, all, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. There's some good things to the young uh, ruler. He's not called young or a ruler in the Gospel of Mark. That's actually in the parallel text of Matthew and Luke. But there's some good things he does that we should address first. He does go to the right person. He does come to Christ. You know, that's, that's a good step right there. You know, A lot of people don't even get that far. And he does approach in a kind of a humble way. I mean, there's some things there that are not quite humble, but he does ask Christ, good teacher, you know. So th- that's some good things that he does do. But let's take a look at his question a little bit more deeply. Um, good teacher, what shall I do to, in- to inherit eternal life? Th- there's a big, big issue there. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The issue is, what do we do to, in- to inherit eternal life? We don't, we don't do anything. We, we don't. That is the work of Christ. He has a focus on his own works, his own way of trying to achieve heaven. He, it's a very legalistic look at it, and it's also the focus of all other religions besides Christianity that you do something to earn heaven instead of what God does. Let, let's see how Jesus replies to him in verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is kind of a weird reply if you first look at it. I mean, when I first read it, I didn't quite get what Jesus was getting at. Well, why, why is this weird? Because we see the same question asked a few times in the Bible. We see Paul, I mean, Mark, earlier in Mark, Jesus says, if you, if you want to go to heaven, you repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Also, the Philippian jailer that Paul writes about, Paul tells him the same thing. Believe and repent, of, you know. Why does Jesus answer this? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. There's a deeper answer there. It's also a reply that cuts right to the heart of the issue here. What, what does it mean to be good, first and foremost? That's an important thing we should explain. Why is only God good? Because God is the only one that keeps the law. I mean, he's the only one that could keep the law. I and mean, We'll get to more of that here as it goes on. But in stating this reply, he states three things without having to say it. He's also he's claiming his deity. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. If, if he's the only one that's good, therefore he's God. He's also about to refute the man's claim here in a minute. He's already refuting it before the man says it. He's, he's also pointing out that keeping the law is what makes one good. And no one can keep the law. Therefore, no one is good. Um. The man replies with, I mean, Jesus replies, he goes on to say, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, and then the young, rich young ruler replies, and he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Did he really keep all those things from his youth up? No, there, there's no way. <laughs> it shows his misunderstanding of what the law was and what what God was, I mean, what good is. It's a fundamentally misunderstanding from the very beginning. Because we know in James 2, it says if you break the law at any point, you break the law and it's in the whole entirety. We also know that in Galatians, Paul argues that no one has been justified by the law. It doesn't justify. You cannot be justified by the law. It is, it is what it, it puts you to death is what Paul describes it as. And we also know that sin doesn't start from keeping the law outside Sin originates from your heart, from within. 
So even if you outwardly keep the law, inwardly you still sin. We see this in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, Have you heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery? But I said to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin originates from within. So even if he was able to keep it outwardly, he didn't keep it inwardly. It's impossible. None of us have. There's only one man who did it, and it was the God-man, Jesus. But we'll, you know, we'll get to that a little bit more. I th- this reply shows to him that he's kept the law, or he kept it from his youth, that he did not know what sin was. He had no true understanding of what sin is. He also did not know what good was. And, he, and it also shows that he, he already has a God here in a minute. Um, going, back to verse, going down to verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, this is a pretty powerful thing that Jesus is showing love and compassion for this man, the man who fundamentally don't understand. He doesn't understand what sin is. He doesn't understand what God is, you know, the goodness of God. But God feels love for him and says to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Did Jesus, in this statement, does he really want you to sell all your goods to follow him? Or, or is he digging at something deeper at this man? Is he, does he know this man's heart? He knows what's already rules this fellow. He's already digging at him saying that, you can't follow me. You already have a God. It's money. This is your God. You can't follow me. You already serve someone. Um, why did Jesus ask him to do this? I mean, other than to point it out to him, what, what was the purpose of asking this? Well, it wasn't to make him get rid of his wealth, because that, that's not a gospel thing. We're not to sell off everything we own. You know, um, but if you if you you worship it, you probably should. Um, it's to show that this man has something in his life that he wasn't willing to give up. There was something already he worshipped, and it was his money. You know, the price of Christ. It's a free gift to all, but there's a price. It's a price, and it's all of you. It's every bit of what you own. It's every bit of what you are. If it's your job, it's your your relationship, it's the way you raise kids. The price of being a Christian is all of that. And this man already had something he wasn't willing to give up. And it was his money. But skip down a little bit farther here. Um, but at these words, he was sad, and he, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He didn't want to give it all up. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The word here for hard is actually the word that means impossible. And we'll, we'll see that. We'll go on down, and he'll make it very clear what he's talking about. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Why were the disciples amazed at this? This is something I skipped over several times. Why did the disciples be shocked? Why were they shocked at this teaching? At this point in the Jewish culture, it was understood that anybody who had wealth had the blessing of God to a point. And they also could afford to sacrifice more and offer more offerings and alms and all that. So they were like, well, if this man can't do it, you know, that's, that's wild. This guy, can, he gives more offerings and sacrifices than the rest of us do. And then Jesus goes on to say, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
there's been a lot of weird teachings on this verse right here. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Some people will say that the word, the, the Greek word there for um, eye of a needle actually means gate, but the true rendering is eye of a needle because what Jesus is trying to say, how impossible it is to, for a rich man to be saved. So it, it clearly is saying it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then the disciples are even more astonished and said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He's pointing out to them, it's not your riches that can save you. It's nothing that you can do that saves. Salvation is a gift from God. It is, you can't buy it. It's impossible for any man to earn it outside of God. Um, and if you go on a little farther, I didn't, I didn't do verses 28 through 31, but they're part of the same story, and we probably should touch on them. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter is saying, Look, you know, we have gave everything up. You know, unlike the rich young ruler who couldn't give up his money, we, we have. And that's the Christian attitude. You, you, you will give up everything for Christ. It is, you are to submit to him. You know, it, it means in every area of your life, you will submit to him. And Peter is saying this. Peter began saying, Behold, we have left everything. Even though they fully didn't understand Jesus early on about the impossibility of man reaching salvation through riches or any other means. They understood that they have given it. They're, they're sold in. Everything they own is to him. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In, in this life, to follow Christ, you're going to have to give up all kinds of things. You're going to have to, family, you're going to lose family, you're going to lose friendships, you're going to lose relationships, you're going to lose homes, you're going to lose money. It's like the great, I don't know if you ever listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones, but a, a great pastor, preacher, who had a great um, doctor, you know, he was a lawyer, he, he made a lot of money, and he gave it all up to follow Christ. And that's how we are, we're going to have to be, with our life, we have to give up everything that is not of Christ to follow him. Um, and the main point that Jesus is getting to this is that through, through him, all things are possible. Salvation is through him. There's nothing we can do to earn that. Now, how do we apply that to our lives? How do we apply that to our prayer or in our daily walk with Christ? First, in prayer, we should recognize that all that he's done is, you know, it's him, not us. We've not accomplished anything. You know, or, or salvation or any works that we have done is through him, period. All only thing that's good that we do is through Christ. We do not do good. No one does good. No one searches for good without Christ. In our prayer life, we should be very thankful to Christ. We should, we should give him praise for that. How should we do with our daily walk? We should honor this. We should, we should realize that when we're talking to unsaved people, that, that it is the natural reaction to Christ is for them to, it's foolishness to them. You know, it, it is not what they want. And we, we have to realize that we were once like that. 
You know, that, that's the thing about Christians a lot of times is we don't realize we were once in that same situation. And we, we can be higher and holier than now, you know. We should realize that we didn't do anything. We have no reason to boast over them. God did a work through us. You know, he worked and changed us. It's, a, it's an important thing to realize that because um, I've seen a lot of Christians act as if they made a, or they, they've done something to earn or or they made a great decision, but that's not how it is. God worked. God moved. You know, He gave you a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And you should, we should keep that in mind when we're dealing with, especially with unbelievers. Um, I think that's it. <laughs> I, I think that's all I got for today. Uh, so I thought it was going to be longer. I, I appreciate it. Um, I know you guys are being nice. But I, we're going. I'm going to continue with Pastor Brian's, you know, grace that do a Wednesday nights here, and um, I think we're going. What I plan on doing is just going through some stories in the Gospels of the Bible, probably parables and stuff, and just kind of breaking them down. If that's cool with everybody here, you know. Well, I appreciate you and let me get up here and rambling on. Thank you. Let's turn to page 379. Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be
its way I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom He's sweeter than honey from my hungering spirit needs I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Amen. Praise the Lord.